Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. This is always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Coming to you for, honestly, one of the last times from Arlington, Texas. Uh, heading back to Arkansas next week with another load of stuff. and We'll have some random crap left here we'll have to bring up. I uh, got the office squared away last week. Going to go up there and actually set the office up this week, get the Internet stuff installed and all that. So it won't be long before you're hearing. Uh, welcome to another edition of the Survival Podcast coming to you from Hot Springs, Arkansas, uh, which will be cool because we'll be up there finally after all this time. I tell you that because I've been going away recently a lot, heading up there, and I've been killing myself working, you know, cramming five shows into two days, which is ungodly, unbelievably hard. I'm not going to be able to do it this time. I'm just out of the mental and physical bandwidth to do that. So there will be some days without shows next week. There will be a Monday show. There will probably be a Tuesday show. There may be a Friday show. There definitely won't be a Wednesday or Thursday show next week. I just don't have it in me to do it. I'm sorry, uh, but i got to get this move done so I can make the show better for everybody, including myself. I uh, just wanted to put that out right away so I didn't forget to tell you that. Uh, today is a Friday. It is April 1st, 2011. It's April Fool's Day, but there will be no April fooling here. I thought about doing kind of an April Fool's video on YouTube. One of these years I'll do it, but I decided not to do it this year. Why? I'm out of energy, man. <laughs> I just don't have uh, I just don't have it in me to cram another video, and I got one right now. I need to edit for you guys on the Kelly Kettle, uh, just as a product review, and I haven't even gotten that done yet. I'll try to do that over the weekend. Uh, but no April Foolery here. What it is, since it's Friday, it's listener call-in day. That means that you pick up your phone, you mash numbers. Those numbers are 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK, but this is a podcast. And it's not live. You can't call me today. Well, you can, but you won't hear yourself today. You'll hear yourself within a week or two. Tips for those to call in. Be direct. Be to the point. Get your question out quick. Uh, don't leave a lot of um, uh, 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 in your call. And I'll probably get you on the air, even with some ums and uhs. Don't, don't sweat that one too much. But don't call from a ninja motorcycle running a weed ear, running a chainsaw, or driving with the window open. I had two calls today I had to throw out. One was asking something about a fruit tree, and the other one was uh, recommending another podcast for people to listen to. Would have been happy to put either one on, but one sounded like they were calling from a wind tunnel, and the other just sounded like a bad cell phone connection. So those folks can try to call back in. Let's go ahead and get to your calls. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors and our housekeeping. Sponsor of the day number one today, Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals is my source for anything and everything herbal, whether I want prepared preparations or raw herbs. Everything there is organically grown or wild-crafted, as crazy as it sounds. If you go out and wild-craft something, which means you go pick it out of the middle of the jungle... Uh, where it's never been touched by human hands, you can't call it organic. So I have to say organic or wild-crafted. Dr. Kyle Christensen over there runs that place. He's an amazing guy with a lot of knowledge. And if you need help picking something out, pick the phone up. They will help you. And remember, if you're part of the Member Support Brigade, they have a program called a Premium Membership. Uh, that gives you 25% off everything they sell. That's a huge discount, by the way. 25% off every herbal that they sell. And uh, that's 50 bucks a year for their customers. But MSB members, you get it for free. All you got to do is call them, give them the code that's in your member support brigade. They give you that membership for free. Guess what? Member support brigade costs $50 a year. That's one benefit that pays for it. So 
Consider the MSV on that alone. Next up today, knife kits. I love knife kits because they are a company that will let anybody out there kind of get started with bladesmithing and knife crafting. Um, if you're an experienced bladesmith and you want really cool exotic materials, you can get cool stuff like some of the most awesome-looking exotic woods or even mammoth tusk for making knife handles at knifekits.com. But if you're a brand-new person, you can buy kind of a put-together kit where you do some polishing and final sharpening and final fitting of the handles and customize it to look the way you want, but pretty much everything's already in the shape and form that it needs to be for you. So whether you're that advanced bladesmith or the new person in knife crafting, check out knifekits.com. Another great member support brigade supporter. 10% off everything they sell if you're in the member support brigade. I also want to remind you guys, check out our gear shop. Again, I want, I just got yesterday, I got the dog tag bottle openers. I don't see that stuff until you guys do. It goes to California, out where Sis and TW are. Uh, she sent me a bunch of the dog tag bottle openers. Uh, if I see you somewhere in public, I'll give you one because I got a pile of them. They are awesome. And at $4.95, there's something anybody can afford. Check those out. Check the new lanyards out. We're going to be trying to do more to make sure the staff of the gear shop is, is uh, communicating directly with the staff. I'm having them set up their own account on the blog so they can blog about stuff when it comes in and making sure they're posting to the fan page as well. Remember, the gear shop has a fan page, so consider joining the gear shop fan page as well. Uh, that's on Facebook, by the way. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You get discounts like, you know, Gear Shop 10%, 10% Knife Kits, free premium membership to Western Botanicals, free discount lifetime membership with Safe Castle Royal, and it just goes on and on. And you're supporting the show at what? 20 cents an episode. With that, we've got the housekeeping knocked out. I've told you about the way things are going to be next week, and I'm excited even though I'm a little bit tired because I've got all this cool stuff going on, and I'm ready to hear from you. So let's go ahead and take that first listener call today. Hey, Jack. This is Dylan in southwest Colorado. I've been following Spackle Podcast for approximately one year, and I have a couple quick questions for you. First, I'm a recent college graduate with approximately ten grand in credit card debt, and about 35 grand in student loan debt. My question is, should I focus on um, paying one off at a time, or should I maybe hit both at once? My income is low, but I recognize the debt is cancer, and I want it gone. My other question is, should I try to secure a home for my family now? We are currently renting and are, have been looking at purchasing for a while. Um, or should I wait until the debt is gone? Uh, there are lots of foreclosures in my area, southwest Colorado, and was just curious on your stance on this. Keep up the phenomenal podcast. Thanks. Well, while I'm not a fan of Dave Ramsey's investment advice, and let me be clear about that holistically, like his investment advice is fine for a piece but not all of your money, uh, I'm a huge fan of his, his, his methodology for getting rid of debt, which is not even really his methodology, but he's the best known for it, which is why I bring him up, called the debt snowball. Now, the way you're going to do this is, it doesn't even matter what the interest rate is, but in this case, I know that your interest rate on your student loan is lower than your interest rate on your credit card because that's just generally the way it works. Uh, but you don't even worry about that, really. You look at the debt that's smaller. So you get about ten grand on a credit card, and you got about thirty-five grand on a student loan. So what you're going to do is you're going to make your minimum payments on your student loan. You're going to apply one hundred percent of every extra penny you can get toward paying off your debt to your smaller debt because you can pay it off faster. And when that debt is fully paid, and let's say you could pay $500 a month, you're roughly at 20 months. Well, then you take that $500 a month that you were paying, you add it to what the minimum payment was to your student loan debt, and you begin to kill that thing like the miserable vampire that it is. 
If you took the $500 extra and put $250 into both debts as extra payments, you're going to be in debt for a lot longer, you're going to pay a lot more in interest payments, and you're going to feel like you're not getting anywhere. And that's just the way it is. And maybe $500, you can't do that much. Whatever it is you can do, you do. So that's how you're going to pay your debt off. It's the only way to pay your debt off. There's no magic secret when you're in the car and you're driving down the road and you have a commercial come on on the radio and you hear it go, there are secret programs debt collectors don't want you to know about. Change the channel because they're all full of shit. There are no secret programs that debt collectors do not want you to know about. They, the debt collectors actually created the secret programs so they could sucker you into destroying your credit and paying even more money. So that's it. That's the only way, and that's what you're going to do. Smallest debt first. If you said you had 10 debts and one was $10 and uh, the most expensive debt was $100,000, what debt would you think I'd tell you to pay off first? So we just scale that up from the, from the extreme to the not so obvious and it works the same way. Getting a home for your family. Um, I'm going to tell you that right out of college, sitting on $45,000 worth of debt and uh, not having much of an income, you're not going to buy a house because no one's going to loan you the money to buy a house. Uh, I don't think it's probably the right decision this early for you either because at your age and your state in life, you're not going to probably buy the house you really want to be in. So you're going to want to stay mobile and you're going to want to stay portable and renting is the way to do that, but start shopping now. It's free to shop for houses. And what I mean by shopping is start looking for what you really want. Um, and don't really focus on the price so much as what you really want. Try to find the house that's going to be a house you'd want to live in for 20 years or more. And what's that going to cost you? And you might decide that, you know what, this is the kind of house I want, but this is not the place we're going to find that house for money that we can afford. So you might start looking at other geographic areas and things like that. Don't tie yourself down this early in life because all you're going to end up with is stuck with a house you're trying to unload. If somebody's looking to buy a house right now and they say, this is a house that I'm going to be comfortable living in for a decade or longer, I'm not looking to buy a house as a starter house and, and get rid of it in two to three years. My recommendation is this is a wonderful time to buy a house. If you have good credit uh, and some money to put down and so, so you can get some equity right from the beginning and you're not going to be house poor, uh, houses are still depressed in value. There's a good chance that the real estate market may recover. There's a good chance that it won't. We don't know which one it's going to be. But if you want to live there for 10, 20 years or more, it's a great time to buy a house that you can afford to buy. If you're going to tell me we don't really know where we're going to be 10 years from now, this is not a good time to buy a house. Because the market, to me, has just as much a chance over the next three or four years as deteriorating as it does improving. And probably in the real short term, two to four years, a greater chance of deterioration uh, than improvement. So if you're ready to settle down and put roots... It doesn't really matter that you bought a house for 150 and now it's only worth 140 because you don't want to sell it anyway. If you want to sell it, uh, you know, you got problems. And if you put some equity in there, you insure against the loss. So that's kind of where I think you're at right now. I think you should rent in the most affordable uh, fashion possible for yourself until you get rid of at least the credit card debt. And at least a portion, maybe 15k of that student loan. So look at $25,000 uh, is a point where you're going to be down on your debt. Then what to about 20k, and uh, by then you'll probably have more income and you can find better digs. You can always consider renting something other than an apartment, though. Uh, there's a lot of houses out there for rental that are a lot more affordable than they used to be. 
It's now the case where a lot of times you can rent a house for less than you would buy a house for. And remember, the one thing about rental, people look at it and go, well, if I rent this house, it's $950. If I bought this house, my house payment would be about $980. $30 difference to own the house. Uh, when you rent the house, you're not responsible for the water heater. You're not responsible for the roof. You're not responsible for the siding. You're not responsible for the foundation. You're not responsible for filling the blank. It costs a lot more to own a home than the house payment. And I'm not just talking about the electric bill and the water bill and the sewer bill, because you're going to have all that anyway as a tenant. But all of the upkeep to the home costs money that you don't have to pay. So I just think at your station in life, you're probably better off staying mobile. Now, if there's information I don't have that would make it like, oh, well, my grandmother left me $80,000 to buy a house with, and I can go put an $80,000 down payment on a $120,000 home. Go buy a house. I don't think that's the situation you're in, though. But that's that's the kind of thing that would change it for me. Anything else I'm going to say at your station in life, don't worry. You know, And you might stick with an apartment for right now. Don't worry about cutting grass. Don't worry about any of that crap. Just work your ass off for a couple years. And it's only a couple years. And the way I put it with people is you can do anything for a couple years. You can do anything for a couple years. And then what you have will have so much more value to you. All right, let's go ahead and take another call. Good one there to lead off with. Hi, Jack. Um, this is Susie. Um, it's been months now. Um, my question is, what do you do in a situation where it hits the fan big time and you're dealing with neighbors who are detoxing from, like, um, Oxycontin and psychiatric drugs? Because we have two households in our area. Um, one family's got a reputation of, like, getting high, and the other has a history of mental illness. And um, our town had its uh, first known flood about seven, eight years ago. And, um, and the men from these households got together and scared drugs out of um, some, some of our neighbors. Um into tidying them over until uh, things got recovered. So, well, anyway, we're, we ordered our um, pepper spray recently, so we should be getting it soon. But I think it's going to take more than pepper spray to handle these neighbors if it ever hits the fan big time. And from what I understand, it takes more than a couple of bullets to take down a person detoxing from something like Oxycontin. Um, what do you recommend for that scenario? All right, well, if I remember right, and if I'm wrong, I'm sorry, but if I remember right, you'd called in before about this type of a thing, and you got a couple ladies in your home together, and for one reason or another, you're not armed or can't be armed with guns, and I think I'd recommend it. Maybe you could be, and I didn't know the full situation. Um, assuming that you can be, let's let's correct a myth right there. There's this the, the, the myth that it's not really a myth; it's just a misunderstanding, I think, on your part, that a person detoxing needs more than a couple bullets. Um, actually, is a person that's keyed up on the dope that needs more than a couple bullets. A person detoxing is uh, vulnerable, actually. Uh, I would also tell you that anybody might need a, more than a couple bullets. Handguns are um, the best thing we can use when we don't have a rifle or a shotgun. Uh, keyed up on dope or not, if you put a load of buckshot into somebody's chest, their, their, their problems are over. Let's talk more about the problem as a whole, though. Let's try to talk about it in two ways. One, from what I know of your situation, and one for everybody listening as well. Um, first, I think that you've got a known problem in your neighborhood. The best result would be to put together a community that says... Um, 
you know, get the other men specifically and women in your neighborhood to say, look, we know that these people are a problem. And if something goes wrong, we know that we're going to have to deal with them. And there's a couple of them, and there's a whole bunch of us. So let's have a plan to band together and protect each other in a situation. Because this is, let's kind of transfer now. This is something we all have to deal with. There's plenty of us that are sitting right now in areas that look much nicer than where you live, you know, most likely from what I remember of your other call. And uh, we don't think we have this problem, but we do. There's, there's, there's drug users everywhere, from gated neighborhoods and, and the nicest white-collar neighborhoods to the, the city slums. There, there's dope in every neighborhood in America. And these people, and there's both types of dope, like you're saying, like the prescription meds that keep people stable uh, or out of pain, and then like the, the, the narcotic user that just gets keyed up on dope all the time. And when these people are cut off from their supply, they do become dangerous. And their first instinct is to go to somebody else that may have medication they actually need and try to take it away from them. So you're dead right to assess that as a threat. So what you have to ask yourself is, one, if it's that bad a situation and the situation's bad enough that these people are free to do this stuff and no one else will help you, is it time to bug out? And it may be. It may be that that's the time you need to pick up and go. Um, and a lot of real bad neighborhood-level regional disasters that are way more likely than the national or global shit hit the fan, you're better off leaving anyway. So there is, and I know there's like this, there's this part of us as human beings that's like, screw that, I don't want to leave, this is my house. You know? What, what do you mean leave? leave? They should they, they're, you know, but again, we don't make bug out decisions on bravado on either side. I'm staying to fight or I'm going to go because I'm going to go out and go in the woods, right? We don't do that on either side. We do it based on one simple fact. The rule of survival, number one, tomorrow wake up breathing. So when your odds of survival are higher by leaving, you leave. I would, if there's any way, make the household well-armed, and if it, if it ever comes to a point where there's someone at your door, you tell them to go away, You tell them they'll be harmed if they come inside. You don't go out and confront the threat directly because that puts you in a, in a precarious, vulnerable state. And if they breach, you shoot them. And I, I know that just sounds so freaking harsh. But if you go to somebody else's house, maybe you won't get shot. If you come in here, you're going to get a load of buck shot from a 20 gauge. And, and that's, that's the easy answer. Pepper spray, get the biggest, nastiest cans you can get. Um, and just, I mean, you're right. You're probably going to stop somebody trying to push their way in the house. If it's just a house with ladies in it, you've got a couple of big guys, you've got a real physical disadvantage there. That's why I'm a firearms, you know, proponent. A firearm levels the table really, really quick. Uh, the other thing is, if you're in a situation where you have to stay put, close everything up. Lock the doors, close the windows, draw the drapes, uh, make the house look uninhabited. And again, uh, I, that's, I mean, those are the, uh, there's no easy answer to this. But you have to have a plan to leave if you have to. You have to try to make some effort to band the community together. And that is so, th that will keep a lid on things a lot more than anything else. Because two or three guys banding together to go get dope, when there's 50 guys ready to club them to death for it, they'll leave the neighborhood and go somewhere else to do it. Right? A, a, a little small lady with a 20 gauge sitting in her dining room going, come on! You, 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 I don't want to do it, but if you open that door, you're going out horizontal, that'll do it. Uh, the pepper spray is an impediment, right? That's really what it's all about. It's a, it's a way to slow down and hopefully deter. So it's, it's an impede and deterrent. 
it is not a terminate, it is not, you know, it is not a halt of the attack. It is hopefully something that repels the attack. And that's all it can be. But it, it is a very valuable thing. Um, we have a little end table. I have a great big can of cold steel. And uh, I have a piece of Velcro on it. And I have a piece of Velcro on the table. And like when you open the door, that table's right there. And all you got to do is reach under the table and pull that out and spray. And there are these stories of people like, I was keyed up on dope and he was sprayed with 57,000 pounds. You know, and well, there's, there was pe there's people that have been shot in the head with a shotgun and run 100 yards. We have to play the odds in all things that we do in our life. I, I'm sorry I can't give you a more concrete answer, but those are the only things I can tell you that you can do in this scenario, other than make sure local law enforcement is notified of their past activities. And, you know, if they've done what you said they've done before, it may not be still too late to press charges on sons of bitches and have them hauled off. Um, and, and that's a big thing. You need to make sure local law enforcement is aware of who they are, where they are, and what they've done in the past. Uh, and that way, if you ever do have to terminate one of them, you're on record of saying these people came here and did this before. And that gives you an additional legal leg to stand on. Best I can do, sorry about your situation. If you can get out of that place, find a new home. I think that would be best long term. I know it's easier said than done. It's just my advice. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Dave from Upper Michigan. I was just listening to show 627 where you're talking about uh, gardening techniques and and where it has its function and not. And most people I know use a rototiller every year to grind in their compost and begin their gardening, and they garden by rows. They don't do raised beds. This is the way I grew up doing it. Uh, what, what are the problems with doing that, or how could I modify that to be more healthy for, to make it more healthy for the soil? Um, not trying to make more work for myself by depleting the soil, by, by turning it over, using a rototiller every year. Um, any feedback you can give me there would be great. Thanks a lot, Jack. Appreciate your work. Thanks. Bye. All right. Well, let's start off with a story that's going to seem unrelated at first. A guy comes home and his wife's cooked a roast, and she's got the roast sitting out on the thing, and the the roast is there, and there's uh, like kind of a, a tip roast, and the the end of the roast is cut off, and it's in two pieces. And he says, "Honey, I love the way you make the roast, but uh, why is the end of the roast cut off?" And she said, "I don't know. That's the way Mom always did it, so that's why I do it." So they call mom up because they, you know, she says, I never really thought of it. So they call mom up. Mom says, that's the way your grandma did it. So they three-way grandma on the phone and grandma says, why'd I do that? I did that because the pan wasn't big enough to hold the whole roast. So my, the moral of the story is we don't do things just because they've always been done unless we understand why and why it still applies. Um, the reason that people are big on rototilling is because you got to get the, the soil all nice and loose so that you can put the plants into it and they can grow. And it was a mechanical apparatus that would do that for you without a shovel, so it saved labor. But where did it come from? It came from growing things like a farm. See, this is when most people grow things in their gardens with, you know, they grow rows and they rototill and they don't use beds and what have you. And I'm not... Raised beds we'll talk about in a bit because there's different reasons for doing raised beds, not just for the soil conditioning, uh, but for some other reasons. They have some advantages and some disadvantages. But the reason the, the average garden looks like the small farm is the, uh, the garden uh, roots in this country come from farmers who would have a great big field of corn or, or, or wheat or rye or whatever, 
And then they would grow maybe a half acre to an acre uh, for their own use, for a kitchen garden. They grow cucumbers and tomatoes and peppers and stuff like that. And, and maybe sell some surplus, but most small farmers with a 40-acre farm would, you know, make basically what their version of the backyard was, was the kitchen garden. So what did they do? Well, they knew how to farm, and they knew how to make nice straight rows and do all the stuff that they did, and they used their tractors and stuff like that. So they basically did the same thing in a garden. So the rest of America says, well, who knows how to grow food? It's the farmers. They look at the farmers grew a garden and said, let's do that too. So then industry springs up, invents a rototiller so that you have a mini version of what the farmer uses on the big farm. And then the garden looks like the little farm. So that's why we're here. So now that we understand why we're here, we can deconstruct, do we need to do this? And we can ask ourselves, is there certain things that in a commercial farm we have to do that we'd rather not do, but if we want to grow a hundred acres and it's going to be run by one or two farmers, we have to do it that way. So I can only get so much on modern agriculture for using combines and not mulching and stuff. It's hard to mulch a 100-acre field. Well, it's also hard to grow 100 acres uh, and do it all by hand. But when we do it in our garden, we can do everything by hand, so we can do better. In other words, it cost you a lot more to buy a Ferrari than a Corvette, but the Ferrari is completely built by hand. You know, every bit, except for the part it has to be, and that's even hand-machined. Right, and and there's a reason that we pay more, not just because it'll go 210 miles an hour, but the quality of the product as well. So we can make that quality in our backyard. The big pro there's two big problems with rototilling. One is you run that rototiller and you look at the soil, you go look at it, it's all loose and nice, and you pick it up and you feel it in your hands, and you think it's so great. What you can't see is just below that soft soil, you've now compacted all the soil. As those blades are churning around, they cut and chew up everything they can cut and chew up. And as and the rate where they end, they they're packing the soil. So basically, what you've made, especially if there's a lot of clay in your soil or a heavy clay loam, you've basically made a a, a pond, a dirt pond. So when it waters, you don't get good drainage. It only drains out the sides, if that. The sides of the area tend to get packed in as well. So that's one problem is you're compacting the soil. And every year you do it, you pack it heavier and heavier and heavier. So you end up with really nice soil sitting on hard pack. So if that rototiller is going down six inches, that's how deep the soil is well conditioned. And everything after six inches is packed hard. So will you get terrible results? No, but you can get better results and have less need of irrigation if you're not compacting the subsoil, and these plants can send down these little tiny hair tap roots, which actually develop tremendous pressure when you sow from seed if the soil's not compacted. That's one. The other thing is you're ruining the ecosystem for all the little creatures that live in your soil. You're killing the worms, you're killing all the little beneficial soil creatures, and you're not allowing pH to stratify. What happens in soil when it's left alone? And people say, well, my soil pH is 7.1 or 6.8. No, it's not. When you mixed it all together, you got an aggregate average of a 6.8. But the soil that's at the first inch and the soil that's at the seventh inch are probably dramatically different in pH. And if you allow the stratification to remain in place, your plants will grow down and they will put out most of their root system in the pH they prefer. So you can grow plants that have very different pH requirements right side by side and both do wonderful. All of that gets ruined when we till. The other thing that happens when we till is that we create a great environment to grow weeds in. We, 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 we 
fluff that soil up, we make it perfectly, you know, nice and, and we, we, we turn everything in. So maybe there are some weed seeds here and there. We actually turn the weed seeds in. We turn them all up. Weed seeds that we buried two years ago that didn't grow because they were too deep in the ground to germinate well. We bring them to the surface. We just create weed heaven. So now we have to weed. We also, for the first time we do it, we turbocharge the nutrients. And that's why it gives you such great results in the beginning. You get all of this oxygen down there and everything gets churning, boy, and you put those plants in there, and it's this huge nutrient release. But it's like giving somebody a shot versus a capsule. You get that initial rush, and it's so much better uh, as far as the therapeutic effect than the capsule, but the capsule is long duration. And so these are all the reasons that I advise against it. Now, there are situations where maybe the first time it makes sense to till soil, to dig soil, to do what have you. But once you get things set up, you really never have to do it again. Keep adding mulch, keep adding compost. Keep adding mulch, keep adding compost. That's all you have to do. And if you do that, what you'll end up with is four or five years into it, you take your hand on a day where it's not too wet because it didn't just rain so it's not muddy, so you don't come up with a muddy arm, and you stick your hand into the soil, it goes down to your elbow. Because all those little creatures down there are constantly tilling the soil for you in nature's way. Look at it this way. You go to a forest, everything grows beautifully, the production's amazing. No human being or no machine ever tills that soil. But billions of little creatures are constantly tilling the soil. So, there you go. That's the answer to that one. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. Uh, I was uh, wondering if I could I have a comment about salt. Uh, I'm uh, just getting started on prepping and everything, but uh, my grandfather used to talk about uh, uh, salting hams and, and how uh, how important salt was for his uh, situation. Uh, I'm curious about uh, can you use rock salt? Uh, what's the long-term storage on salt? How much, how much salt would you need in the average year? Um, this is assuming that you don't have any re- refrigeration or any other uh, sort of mechanical or electrified uh, ways of preserving food. Um, Thanks much. Enjoy the join the podcast, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing back. Thanks. Okay, it's a good question. The thing is that there's another caller that's so similar in their question that I'm going to go ahead and play the second caller's question. I'm going to kind of do a twofer here uh, with this one. So hold on, we'll bring in the next caller, and then I'll come back and give you my answer on both of them. Hey, Jack. This is uh, DJ from Western PA. I got a quick question for you. Uh, I'm learning how to can and whatnot, and I'm using vinegar and salt and everything. And I was wondering if uh, you couldn't use road salt, like not actual road salt, but uh, the big bags of salt you get in the wintertime for your driveway, like the rock salt. Or if that'd be all right to use. Uh, thanks for everything you do, Jack. I'll talk to you later. Mm, bye. Well, I said they were similar, so let, let's talk about this. Basically, you know, What about salt, and what kind of salt can we use? And um, In some ways, salt is salt is salt is salt. So you can put away anything uh, for salt, and, and you have salt, with like the exception of the second collar. I would not use salt that's designed for melting stuff on your deck or your road or your patio or your driveway uh, for salt that you're going to use for uh, purposes where it will be consumed. Here's why. You don't know what the hell's in there, and the standards for what goes in there are entirely different than any type of salt that you would use for consumption. So it's not that the salt part is any any danger. 
It's what might be in there in addition to salt, like dirt and, and toxins and shit and stuff like that that, that it, it, you just don't worry about when you're selling a product for somebody to shovel onto a driveway. So with that exception, salt is salt, whether it's sea salt, whether it's mine salt, and the storage life of salt is basically infinite. Um, it can be abused to where, you know, salt goes flat, as they call it, and, and that, then it's, then it's useless. It's only good for throwing on the ground to melt ice. But, yeah, you have to kind of really abuse salt for that to happen. You have to think about what salt is, how we get it. It comes out of mines, or it comes out of the ocean, where it's either been in suspension or in a vein for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So, I don't care if you get rock salt. I don't care if you get, um, you know, finely ground salt. I don't care if you get sea salt. I personally like to cook with sea salt, but I see that more as a gourmet level type of thing, you know, like more of a quality issue there. When it comes to salt for, for just storing and to make sure we could do things like preserve meat and tan hides, we just buy the cheapest stuff we can get. How much? I, I don't really have a great answer to that question. I, I don't. It's very difficult to say, you know, this is how much salt everybody should store. And I don't even really have a good reason that we came up with this number, but our number is 50 pounds. We look at salt, it's sub-dollar a pound in, in volume, so it's 50 bucks. And, and that's a tremendous amount of salt, and as we use it, we replace it. And, and believe it or not, we store our salt in simple one-pound salt containers, and the reason we do that is because replacing it and using it's very easy. Where if we put it away in a bucket like beans or something, the problem with salt is you need to keep it sealed up because if it gets moist, it gets hard and it all fuses together. It doesn't mean you can't use it, but it's not very convenient. So we keep 50 pounds. Should we keep 100? Maybe. I don't know. Might we once removed? Maybe. I don't know. Um, but I think if you only have a couple pounds of it, like, you know, for daily use, you're, you're missing out on one of the main things that we, that we need if we have a long term, you know, Hollywood level shit at the fan. It's the least likely thing that we're gonna end up in, but if we do, it's very, very cheap insurance about being able to do things from, from medicinal uses. It's good for, you know, salt water if you have a mouth infection or pain in your, in your mouth, oral pain, uh, a salt water rinse. It, it, salt water is good to help wounds heal. So it's not just about its pres preservation qualities. The thing is to realize that there are more ways than just salt to preserve things as well, though. The big thing that salt will help you preserve is meat. Um, a lot of things that we do with vegetables that use some salt can be done without them. And then the other thing is to understand how much flavor salt really brings to our daily food and makes food palatable and worth eating. And I don't even mean a salt at the label that you the level you taste and go, that's salty. I mean, what salt brings out in food? You take two dishes, and I lightly salt one and I don't salt the other. You can taste both of them. The one with the salt is going to taste better, even if you don't taste the salt quality in the food. Every good chef knows this, that a, a pinch of salt here and a pinch of salt there goes a long way to bring those flavors out. So my answer is salt is salt for long-term storage. I personally store table salt, for lack of a better term. I store 50 pounds. It's probably enough. Could be a little bit more. 
you know, it's it's not an expense issue because it's so cheap. You can basically go to the store once a week and buy a, a, a bottle of salt for what ninety cents or something like that, and at the end of a year, you've got fifty pounds stored up. You know, in addition to what you've used, maybe use two pounds or three pounds a year or something like that, and date, you know, put it on your food and stuff like that. So it, it's a spatial issue at some point. You can only store so much stuff. And how much do you want to store of anything? But definitely belongs in everybody's long-term supply plan. Let's go ahead and take another call. Jack, I've heard enough of your um, shows on gardening that I think I'd, I'd like to get started and, and uh, get a garden in place. The problem is I've used my backyard primarily just as a latrine for my dogs. And uh, every square inch of it has been you know, used by the dogs to uh, you know, do their business. So I was wondering what needs to be done to prepare a backyard uh, for gardening if if your if your backyard is essentially been used as a uh, you know as a, a place where your dogs use a restroom. So uh, let let us know. Well, I was saying that earlier when we were talking about tilling that I would talk about some of the advantages that raised beds have over um, not doing raised beds, and one of them is where pets are included. The biggest reason I do raised bed gardening at our home here in Arlington is because when the dogs see this kind of structure sticking up out of the ground, they tend to go around it instead of through it. Because to most dogs, a nice pretty row with some cabbages or broccoli or beans or something in it, if it's flat and level to the ground, well, heck, there's no reason not to go through there, especially when the, there's not even the plants are up yet. They're kind of small and, and vulnerable to a big German shepherd paw. So one of the big advantages for pet owners with raised beds is not just all the other stuff that comes with raised beds, but keeping animals out. Uh, and creating a clear line of delineation that the animal can be trained to understand, I don't go here. One of the problems you do end up with, though, is they tend not to go through it, but they tend to, especially male dogs, if it's a structure, it is meant to be, what, peed on. So you do have to do a little bit of work with that. As far as the yard having been peed on and pooped on in the past by your dogs, I don't worry about that that much, and... I do think like if there's there's poo laying around, well you got to clean it up and get it out of there. Uh, you know, go ahead and set up your beds. Bringing some soil in is a great way to dilute whatever's there. Um, it's nothing that's going to keep things from growing unless it's always in the same place. A lot of dog owners you'll have you think dog urine kills plants. Well, because you got this spot here and this spot here and that spot there where everything's dead. Well, the reason that happens is because the dog pees there every day. And the urine's too concentrated, and it's too much, and it's too often. But uh, urine from any creature is actually uh, high in nitrogen and generally not dangerous uh, as far as it getting into the ecosystem and causing any harm. It's the excessive and repetition that you have to worry about. So my best advice to you is, in your situation, use a raised bed system. Train your dog to stay the hell out of the raised beds. Uh, bring in some good quality compost and things to dilute what's already there. And you probably need it for soil improvements anyway. In a optimum situation, you would plan out your garden, decide how big you want it to be, and maybe put in one of those nice little picket fences completely surrounding your garden to keep your dogs out altogether. And if I were staying here long term, I'd probably expand the garden, put in another four or five beds, and that's exactly what I would do. And then in between the garden rows, I would just mulch it at about four inches of, of heavy, heavy, heavy mulch designed to just keep everything down so that you would have the beds and walking paths. So that's what I would do if I'm going to plan to build something and stay there full time, full term in dealing with animals. The bigger the property 
And the more places the dogs have to roam and the more places you can kind of control them in, let's say, a doggy paddock system, like we move livestock to different paddocks, we move dogs to different paddocks to do their thing, um, we can we can now rely less on structures like raised beds and we can put things back into the ground. Raised beds have a lot of advantages and they have some disadvantages. They you know they, they do some soil uh, wicking and bring some of the moisture up into the nice soft soil, but they also dry out quicker because they're more exposed to the sun. Uh, they're easier to work because they're higher up, uh, but they generally take more money to construct. So it's it's not I'm either pro or anti raised bed. I'm, I'm raised bed for the scenario. Uh, and think about this way. If you are going to fence in an area in your backyard with like a picket fence or something like that, it can look really pretty, look really nice. Maybe get a little arbor on the entry right way. A lot of people do that. It makes it a beautiful, eye-appealing thing. But if you're going to fence it in, you don't need the raised beds. It's up to you whether you want them or not at that point, depending on your environment, uh, the advantages you get, the disadvantages, and what have you. Uh, but I would want to try to fence the animals out in a long-term scenario because they do like to pee on stuff, especially, again, males. So so there you go. But I wouldn't, like, worry about your, your ground being, like, dog Chernobyl or something like that. You think about the fact that everybody gets so obsessive about, you know, well, an animal went to the bathroom here or there, and then they go out in the woods and they pick blueberries and strawberries and stuff, and there's little animals running around crapping everywhere in the woods, you know? And there's animals dropping over dead every day, Thousands and thousands of animals just drop over dead, rot, decompose, lay there in the ground, maggots eat them, they get returned to the soil, uh, deer run through the woods and crap, and squirrels crap, and bears crap, and elk. I mean, it, it, there, there's, there's crap everywhere, yet it doesn't stink, and it's because it's spread out and nature's able to handle it. The problem we always end up to in domestic situations is we're confining animals to a small area. Let's go ahead and take another one of your questions. Hey, Jack, this is Jeff from Iowa. I'm a new listener to the Survival Cup podcast. I've really liked it so far. Uh, like yourself, I'm a, a former veteran of the U.S. Armed Forces. I served seven years in the Army National Guard, and I did two tours in Iraq. And I'm wondering if you would uh, recommend for our younger viewers out there if joining the Army would be good for the survival mindset. And my little brother is currently thinking about joining the Armed Forces, and with our current uh, administration and stuff and our uh, foreign policy focusing on things that don't necessarily, you know, jive with the constitutional and free liberty and all that stuff, I was wondering if you would think that would be a good path for young citizens these days. Uh, thanks for your podcast, and I hope hope to listen to your answer. Bye. It's a very tough question in a lot of ways, but let's answer the direct question, the first question. If you're interested in survival and becoming a prepper and knowing more about survival and being able to be self-sufficient make it on your own, is a couple of years in the military a good way to kind of go to school for that? The answer is no. Absolutely, positively not. There's a lot of great stuff that comes out of the military, and a lot of it can be applied to the survival mindset. Uh, but very little of it is a direct path. It's more like you learn things and then you kind of adapt them. In the Army, you have logistical support elements that provide you all the stuff that you need. Okay? Our military is not designed to be a mil- it's not designed to be a military that goes out and rapes and pillages and lives off the land as it goes. It's designed to be a military that can be benevolent and only kill the people that need to be killed. Right In the old days of warfare, the way an army marches, they went forward and they killed everything because they had to eat as they went. 
It was very hard to set up a logistical supply chain. And again, I know some of you guys are real heavy peace loving libertarians that think we should not use force anywhere. I'm not having that debate. I'm talking about the way things logistically work today and how it applies to this question. All right. So you go out in the military and you think you're going to learn to be a survivalist, but yet you, all your food is provided, all your water is provided, all your clothing is provided, uh, tents are provided. There's tr I mean, it, it's nothing like being on your own as a civilian in the real world during a disaster. What you get from the military is an understanding of how to be trained and how to train and a logistical organization that I believe is absolutely superior to anything anywhere in the world. If you really learn from your military experience when you come out, you can take any complex set of tasks and break them down into individual components and train them. So that means you can break them down and teach them to yourself or teach them to others. That is absolutely phenomenal. You do get confidence. You do, you do get in great physical condition. You do get a mental attitude that's very, very applicable to the survival mindset. You do, the, the biggest thing I think you'll take with you for military experience is I do not have tasks, right? I do not have things I'm trying to get done. The reason I was always willing to hire a soldier first if I had a choice from a Marine or an air, even an airman or a, a Navy person, anybody from the military, when I had them working for me and I said, I need you to do this, it is not a task, it is a freaking mission. Missions, you, you don't fail missions. You adapt, overcome, and improvise, and what you end up with might not look like what you started with, but damn it, we're going to get it done. And, and those are all great things. Is that a good reason to join the military because you want that? Today I have to say no. No. Because, and I think at any time I have to say no. It's a, it's an advantage if you join. The reason you join the military is because you believe in what they're doing and you want to serve. That's why you join the military. If you join for any other reason, you're not going to be happy with your choice in the end. You're going to wish you were somewhere else. You're going to be standing guard duty some night, cold and in the rain and miserable, and uh, and 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 having a you know some sergeant jack around with you about bet your girlfriend's with your best friend now, right? That's what you're going to end up with, and you're going to wish you were somewhere else partying with your buddies or something, especially as a young kid. If you go in with a service mentality, I want to serve, then you're in the right mindset and you get all the advantages. The problem today that, that I have a real concern for anybody, especially in combat arms, joining the military service today. Because I believe we're in these places all over the world, specifically Afghanistan and Iraq, and it'll be Libya soon, it will, where we don't have clear objectives. And this is part of the caution I gave to an older person considering this, this, this recently. The military is not meant to sit in place and do nothing and be shot at. The military is meant we need to take the objective. This is where the objective is. We're going to go there and we're going to execute the freaking objective and take the territory. Sitting around in some kind of peacekeeping mission is not the way to be in the... It's not a, a function of the military as far as I'm concerned. You're, you're going into like a law enforcement function at that point. And there's a reason our military is not allowed to do law enforcement in our own country. Because it's bad to have military doing law enforcement. Right? Other than MPs policing their own. 
It just is. It doesn't work well. So I don't have a problem with us kind of doing law enforcement in other countries. Country needs to be liberated. We go liberate it. We give them elections. You have your freedom. If you don't hold it, it's your fault. Right? Somebody attacks us, we attack them back. That's how the military is supposed, and I don't see it being used that way. But I still appreciate the hell out of everybody serving. And I think it's noble what they do. And I'd rather have people that believe in freedom and liberty and doing the right thing there than somebody that's just there for a job with a mercenary mentality. So anybody that joins, I'm going to shake your hand and thank you for your service. But before you do, I'm going to caution the hell out of you about your motivation, what you expect to get, and what reality versus fantasy is. Because this fantasy that you, if you if you watch war movies and all this stuff, that is not combat. It's not what combat looks like. It's not what combat feels like, with very few exceptions. If you look at movies like the miniseries Band of Brothers, if you look at Saving Private Ryan, and not the not the Hollywood like the very beginning of Saving Private Ryan, that's what war's like. But that's more like what war was like. War today isn't even like that, right? But it's that kind of horror. And it's 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 tough. Now, if you're going to join the military in a non-combat role, that's more like a job. There's also a huge amount of service there. It's hugely valuable. But you got to understand, today you could end up in the same place, being shot at or mortared, or, or tried to be killed with an IED. Plenty of non-combat troops have been wounded and killed in both Afghanistan uh, and Iraq. So, and it's always dangerous. Joining the military is always dangerous work. It just is. The, the environment you operate in, even when you're doing a job that seems mundane, it makes it dangerous. So you're putting your life at risk. All of these things are okay if you have the right mentality. But to become better survival-minded, go out and, and take a good wilderness survival course. Listen to shows like mine. Evaluate your life. Determine what you want. Create individual freedom and liberty. That's a survival mind. The military can give you some things that will help that, but everybody that comes out of the military is never is not necessarily going to be a survivalist. And many of them, if you put them into true survival situations, would fare no better than anyone else if they haven't given it any forethought. Because the military is not about surviving on your own. It's about being part of a well-oiled machine with a very, very big budget. And a great deal of support. That doesn't mean that they live large and live life great and everything's easy, but you're gonna get foot fed every day, you know. So I'll leave it at there for now. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey Jack, this is Andy out here at Fort Bragg. Just wanted to call about the budget battle that's happening for uh, trying to balance the budget. A lot of the soldiers that I work with are really up in arms. There's a an article in the Army Times that said that if there is a uh, if if the budget doesn't get passed, that what would happen is the military would be expected to keep coming to work, and then when a pay when the budget was finally approved, then you would get back pay. So in other words, you would miss your pay for however long the uh, the pay or until the budget was passed. Um, I don't think that's personally going to happen because what congressman wants to not pay the military, especially in the, mili- the middle of a war. But this has been a teachable moment for me to others to, where I've tried to reduce debt, as you've been talking about. And to, to tell people to look, the less you owe, the less dependent you are on that everyday paycheck. And uh, so just wanted to hear your thoughts. Like I said, I don't think it's going to happen. I think it's a lot of saber-rattling for politics. But like I said, it's, it goes back to your reducing the amount of debt that you have. makes it a little bit easier to weather the storm. So thanks for all you do. Take care. Bye.
Let me take this one in three parts. Can it, will it, is it likely? Can it happen? If, if we go to a point where we have a government shutdown, there's no budget approved whatsoever, and the, and, and the money stops flowing, could the military not get paid? Yeah, and, and if that happens that way, old people aren't going to get Social Security. Uh, Medicare, Medicaid cut off. Uh, everything cut off. Uh, all federal workers cut off. So it's, it wouldn't just affect the military. It kind of jives in with the last question, though, doesn't it? This is kind of crap you have to deal with when you work for the government. Um, and, and that's one thing on my last comment. Make sure you understand, when you join the military, you're working for the federal government. That's what you're doing. You're, you're getting a job working for the federal government that you're not allowed to quit. Anyway, um, so the, the, can it? Yes. Will it? Um, I don't think so. And the reason is that in, in general, what happens when we get into these situations, everybody say, bro, they're going to shut the government down. The, the, the Republicans say, look, the damn Democrats won't debate on this budget. They're holding their, they're holding their breath and they're going to shut down the government. And the Democrats say, no, they're trying to steal food from kids' mouths. We're standing up. They're shutting the government down and they play this game. So then it comes right up to the point where we're going to have the government shut down. And they generally will let it happen for a day or two, right? Like, Screw it, you know, no big deal. Because people get paid in, in pay cycles, right? So uh, the money that you're going to get paid next week is already allocated. So if the government shuts down for like a week, nobody's going to miss any pay. But if it shuts down for like 30 days, well, then, yeah, we could have some of these things just not get, just doesn't happen. The money's not there, sorry. But what happens is when they run up against that, What they do is they, bo they both realize that this is a very dangerous game. And they can play it in the court of public opinion until it actually happens. Right? So what they do is they pass what they call an emergency budget extension. So they basically say, well, here's all the non-discretionary spending. The stuff is already basically allocated, and they pass a budget to keep the government running, and then they fight about all the other stuff, like building turtle tunnels in Florida and things like that. So... Uh, that goes into the is it likely. It's not likely, but it, it could happen. It certainly could happen. In some ways, I think it would be good. In some ways, I think it would be good for our government to just shut down for a month. Now, I, I feel terrible for the soldier that's not going to get paid. And I think of everybody out there that, that expects to be paid, they're the ones that should be paid first. But I think it might be good for the people of this country to realize that, one, that it can happen. And pretty much we can recover from anything that happens in 30 days because they're going to back pay you, like they said. And um, I think it might be a really good look into the inner workings and the disgustingness of the politics of our government. And somebody's going to write me hate mail and the old lady's going to starve because of you. They're not going to starve because of my opinion. Right? That's one thing. I, people that write me the hate mail, you need to understand my opinion is not that big a deal. Nobody's making policy based on my opinion. Very few people are voting based on my opinion. They're voting on their own opinion. So quit the hate mail. Right? But I, I do think it would be good because, well, it would be kind of like the doctor strike in the 70s where more patients lived when the doctors went on strike than when they were doing surgery. Um, they, they, anything that slows down the advance of the tyranny of our own government would be good as far as I'm concerned, but uh, the people that get hurt in the aftermath is, is just awful. So you're right. I mean, things like, even if you think your job is safe and secure because you work for Uncle Scam, right? You need to st stay low on debt. You need to be able to pay your bills. You need an emergency fund. Um, but the military is not going to let you guys starve. They're not going to throw you out of, uh, of your housing. Th this is probably not going to happen um, this way. But anybody, and I mean anybody, can lose their job. It's something we need to be prepared for. Let's go ahead and take another call. 
Hey, Jack, it's Rob from Kentucky. Man, I'm pissed off, and i got to vent a little bit, man. I listened to your show recently about the, uh, all this bunch of crap about people buying iodine and the big old scare of uh, radiation coming in. And I just talked to my dad on the phone. He lives in Los Angeles, and the mayor has just put the city, just recently put the city on tactical alert for the radiation wave that's coming. He's a horse's ass to begin with, this mayor of Villa Rogosa. I can't say his name. But, uh, hey, man, I love your show. I'm just pissed off driving home from work, and uh, I had to vent a little bit. So uh, thanks for letting me cry on your shoulder, and uh, talk to you soon. Bye. Okay, once again, we have two callers with very, very similar calls. So I'm going to go ahead and bring the second caller on now, and then I'm going to address them as a twofer again. Hey, Jack. Uh, this is Brian in uh, Ohio. want to thank you for the show, as always. And I had a quick question for you about all of this panic buying over the uh, Japanese nuclear reactor situation. Uh, I see on the forums all over the place that uh, all these different types of nuclear supplies are being bought up like crazy. And when I see stuff like that, I know that six months from now, maybe even two months from now, I'm going to see a bunch of stuff on eBay that's selling for dirt cheap. And I've never thought about nuclear preps before. I always assumed that it would be a non-issue or I wouldn't have to worry about it because I'd be obliterated. But uh, since all this stuff's going to be hitting eBay soon at uh, rock-bottom prices, I didn't know if there was any of it out there that you might consider an actual prep that we might consider, you know, taking a look at purchasing. As always, thanks for the show. We really do appreciate it, and I uh, look forward to hearing the answer on the air. Thanks. Well, I wanted to do both of these questions for a variety of reasons. One, I want to talk about it directly, and two, I want to uh, expand on the Japanese crisis as a whole. I keep getting emails from you guys going, look, Jack, you were wrong. We do need to panic. This 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 thing's in total meltdown now. And, uh, uh, and Alex Jones said, uh, and this guy on this podcast said, uh, oh, God, stop it. Stop it. It's a distance issue. I'm going to be frank with you. If I lived in Tokyo right now, I'd be crapping my pants about this thing. I really would. But not in Los Angeles. There's, you got to understand how nuclear radiation works and how there's you know fallout zones and 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 how much can go how far. It's just like I mean, people have in their head like this giant cloud of death coming. I have all these people that are freaking out about this. I mean, they say, "Well, we got to watch the radiation map. Radiate, well, go look at the radiation map. It looks the same as it did two weeks ago. There's nothing going on here. There's a slight rise in background radiation. You know, you could do that by running your freaking microwave." So it's not that I'm belittling the crisis. It's not that I don't think this is one of the most terrible disasters in human history. It's not that I don't think this could even be turned into a Chernobyl-level event, and they'll lie to us about it. It's just that I don't think it's going to hurt you here with nuclear radiation. I am becoming very concerned about the economic consequences. Um, I am becoming concerned that there could actually be areas of Japan that end up like Chernobyl, where they're basically, you know, figuratively roped off and no longer inhabitable when this is over. Um, for the Soviet Union to lose, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of, of, of acres uh, to that is a problem, but not really. The Soviet Union is one of the largest countries, and it might be the largest geographic nation on the planet, honestly. They got lots of land. Japan doesn't. If Japan loses a couple, you know, let's say 50 square miles, become uninhabitable, it is a massive loss for a nation like Japan. And, and the, the economic repercussions that could have 
uh, with the, the, how much treasury they hold, with everything else that's interconnected with that, with how it would affect the food supply, with the, 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 the sea of Japan, you know, and, and, and losing that as a resource. And we might, for a while, it might not be safe. It might not be for, for years be safe. In some of the area around the ground zero of this thing might be closed off for, you know, a thousand years or more. That concerns me. Sitting here in Texas being irradiated does not concern me, and it shouldn't concern you either, unless we have a similar accident in the United States, leading me to the second caller's question. First of all, I do believe potassium iodide is a great prep. I don't believe you should pay $100 a bottle for it. So if you don't own any, when supply and demand equalize, and they will soon, go buy some and make it part of your preps. If they end up being dumped out on eBay by some dumbass that, that ended up buying a lot of it and they're unopened and safe from a reputable supplier, buy it that way. Um, I do think it's going to be interesting to watch Craigslist and eBay about a month to two months from now when people realize, gee, that was dumb, I don't really need this, and start dumping it. Um, I think, you know... And the only thing that's going to be really cool, more cool than that anytime soon is going to be about January, February of 2013. Because you wait. You watch this industry next year when the hype starts about 2012 and the Mayans. Oh, my God. They will, they will lather it up to the level of Y2K if they can pull it off. I don't think they can because Americans, as dumbed down as they are, are less likely to believe a Mayan prophecy than a real computer issue they could see in front of them, like they did with Y2K, but they're going to try. Um, having things like a Geiger counter, some type of nuclear radiation detection device, if nothing else, it's kind of cool. If you can pick one of those up cheap, fine. And if we ever end up in a, in a crisis in America, and they're lying to us, we would be able to determine what radioactive levels we're dealing with are. So I, I don't think those would be a bad idea either. I've already commented that I'm not a big proponent of the gas mask, chemical suits, and stuff like that. But if you want them, this might be a great time to buy them. Uh, it, it really might. Um, I look at radiation this way. Um, there, if, it's a, if, if it's an exposure, uh, the, the, it's not going to kill you. Potassium iodide is about the only thing we got. It, it really is. It's about the only thing we got, and it's one of the most common effects of radiation poisoning is thyroid cancer. So it's a good prep. If we ever have like wide-scale nuclear radiation everywhere, and you can't go somewhere to get away from it, I hate to say it, you're going to die. The only place to go is underground, and you can only stay under there for so long. So I am far more concerned about the nuclear threat of the plants in America than I am in Japan. I'm far more concerned about the economic impacts of the disaster in Japan for America, not for the Japanese, not for the Chinese, not even maybe for, for those that are close to Japan and other ge geographies. I, I am far more concerned, though, about the economic impact here than the nuclear impact here. I, I also, I'll tell you, man, we, we do need to look at our nuclear infrastructure We've got a lot of these plants that are 40 years old, just like the Japanese have. Some of them are sitting on fault lines. One thing to be aware of, though, what caused the breakdown in Japan, the nuclear meltdown, wasn't really the earthquake. It, it, it's the indirect cause. Because what really did it was when the tsunami swamped the plant, shut down the generators. That's where all this really started. So understand that the earthquake alone 
is not what caused this to happen. To have something similar happen, it's likely to have to have an earthquake, tsunami, combination event. And uh, we've been really blessed with not having that be severe in America. And our West Coast is mostly cliff face. So a lot of the tsunami activity that would, would wreak havoc in something like Japan would be somewhat, somewhat mitigated in the U.S. But if you can pick some cool stuff up in a couple months, hey, why not do it? Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. Dark Sky here. I wanted to let you know an uh, old book that I came across that uh, most of us preppers like a good disaster novel and thought you might be interested and some other people might be. It's called The Death of Grass. It's by John Christopher. Um, it was written back either in the 50s or 60s. It's currently out of print, but it is available on audible.com and I'm sure on some other uh, book audible sites. So that you guys might be interested. Bye. Since I've never heard of the book and I don't know what it's about, I, I cannot not say anything other than maybe it's a cool thing to check out. And some listener called in and suggested it, so do that. I do like audio books, though, especially when I'm driving. Uh, so uh, maybe I'll uh, get a copy of this and listen to it during our next trip to Arkansas. Thanks for the recommendation. The Death of Grass, hey? Um, that sounds like it could be a, a, a disaster novel, or it sounds like it could be a book by Jack Spierko. The Death of Grass. Converting your lawn into something useful that you can actually use. Anyway, uh, great call. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hi, Jack. Brent Amer up in Prince Edward Island, Canada. Uh, thoughts on soil sterilization. I've had some pots out in the greenhouse uh, all winter, and I like to reuse the soil. Would, would the freeze have killed any pathogens, or should I take that out, put it in the oven, bake it, or what are my options for reusing perfectly good soil? Thank you. Bye. Well, I mean, first of all, let's understand that the soil itself is, is, is again, this is a lot like the dog in the backyard. It, the soil, we don't replace our soil in our garden every year. Well, why not? Because there's enough volume there and things are able to disperse where we put this little pot together and it almost is like a Petri dish after a while of all the bad things that can get there accumulate and they have nowhere to go. If we keep a good, healthy system going, we could use the same soil and just plant back into it year after year after year, but that becomes difficult. Will the cold kill off everything? No. Uh, and especially since it spent the time in the greenhouse, it's probably somewhat sheltered. Uh, would dumping it into a pan and baking it basically sterilize it? Absolutely. Um, I just wonder, is it worth it to you? If it's worth it to you, go ahead and do it. It'll work. There's no reason it won't work. The thing is, you said reuse perfectly good soil. Well, it is good soil. And if it's a potting mix, it's probably got a lot of organic matter in it. It's probably got a lot of uh, really light quality uh, soil to it. It probably makes a really good soil amendment for your garden. So unless you exclusively container garden, what you do is you take it to your garden and you, you just mix it in with your garden. You know, when you, you, you clear out your bed, you're getting ready to plant for the next season, spread it out, mix it in with your compost and spread it out in the garden. Uh, and, and then that becomes an amendment to your soil and now you replace it. That's what I do personally. Uh, but yeah, you could sterilize it with, with baking. The cold won't do it for you. Uh, it just won't. It'll get rid of some things, but not everything. Um, the problem with sterilizing it, though, is that not all activity in soil is bad, and you've built up a certain amount of activity there that's, that's positive activity. So by dropping it into your, your main garden, um, any kind of, you know, we say pathogen, it's, it's such a harsh word to describe what's going on here, um, because we might have like a fungus that would affect the plant. Well, all of these things are naturally occurring. 
It's that they get in undue concentrations that makes them a problem. So unless the plant you grew last year had a problem, I would just dump that soil into the garden. If the plant had some sort of a disease, it showed evidence of an infection, I would get it away from my property. I would dump it somewhere. Uh, and I'd, I would not put, if I had grown a tomato plant, for instance, in a pot, where the tomato got blight, I, I would get rid of it. I would absolutely get, now I'm not necessarily off my property, but the hell away from my garden. Uh, or, or I would bake it like you're suggesting, and I still probably wouldn't put it in my garden. Something like that I want away. If the plant was good, healthy, and vibrant last year and lived its whole life cycle, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to dump it into my garden, use it as a soil amendment, and go on back and, and get some more potting soil. Should we get in a place where you can't just go get more potting soil, uh, then baking it, I guess, would be a way to go, as long as it's a sustainable way to heat it up. Uh, and I think you can do that at about 160 degrees is about all you need to do. Uh, and you will uh, effectively bake your dirt out of any nasties that are in there. But again, you're going to kill anything that's good in there as well. You're going to go back to sterile, sanitized soil. Uh, and as we know, when we grow things, we want to grow it in living soil. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Troy in Denton, Texas, calling in a, a response to... Uh, the question about nutrition in an aquaponic system or nutrients in an aquaponic system. Uh, there's been a lot of research done uh, by uh, University of the Virgin Islands, uh, specifically Dr. James Rakosi, uh, over the last 30 years or so. And basically it comes down to there's 13 different nutrients that uh, most plants need, and each one needs differing amounts based on the kind of plant. But in general, there's 13 different nutrients. Uh, Ten of them are in the fish food. Uh, the three that are not in the fish food and typically wind up being uh, uh, deficiencies in the system are iron, uh, potassium, and calcium. And so a lot of bigger systems like raft aquaponics, also called deep water culture, which is the kind that I do, uh, um, quite often you need to supplement these and some some ways that you you can experience that is like when your plants are starting to turn yellow uh that's usually an iron deficiency for example anyway uh but there's yeah there's lots of research done they, even down to the point of pH and different nutrients being differently bioavailable at different pHs so that is that uh, research has been done, and the research is out there on the internet. So, uh, uvi.edu is is the University of Virgin Islands. It's got a lot of that information. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Okay, that's great information. I don't think it necessarily um, covers what the, cust the, the, the the prior question was asking. I think the prior person was basically asking, when we eat the vegetables, do we get the nutrients that we would if we grew the plants in the ground? And if it can become deficient in potassium, iron, and calcium, I would say we're probably deficient in potassium, iron, and calcium on some levels. But how much do we really get of our potassium, iron, and calcium from vegetables? And with iron, I don't think we get much at all. So with iron, I'm going to say, well, you know, one place we get a lot of iron from is things like fish. So the nutritional requirement of iron, we're, we're supplementing with the fish that we're growing from the system anyway. Uh, potassium, 
I wasn't aware that there was a potassium deficiency in an aquaponic system, but you sound like you do this for a profession or at least a really high-end hobby. So if you say so, I take you at your word. And I wonder, could we safely supplement potassium uh, by using composted comfrey? When you compost comfrey alone, it turns into this, this kind of a black soup. It looks like compost tea, but it, you don't have to make tea out of it. It's just, it just turns into that. And small amounts of that added into your grow bed, maybe not directly to the water. I don't know if that would have an adverse effect on your fish, though. I do know that many aquaponics uh, practitioners supplement calcium simply by breaking up eggs and burying eggshells into the gravel bed, and that they have no problems with that, and it takes care of the the uh, the, the eggshell or the, uh, the calcium deficiency very well. The eggs actually break down much quicker in that system uh, than they do if you bury eggshells in the garden. You dig them up, they might be there a year later, and they're slowly decomposing or whatever, but... Uh, I've seen videos where people bury an egg and they go back like three weeks later and there's almost nothing left of it in, in the wet gravel. So that's a great way to get calcium in there and apparently that does not harm your fish in any way. I would think you could supplement potassium uh, very easily. Now iron, I'm not sure how you pull that one off. Uh, maybe we need to check into this website. Maybe you could call back... Uh, it just seems like a little bit more difficult to deal with to me. Maybe the caller could call back and tell me exactly how you supplement iron. I I guess you just use a, a, an iron supplemental fertilizer, but I you know I worry about the health of the fish in the system. Then I, I haven't heard a lot of people doing small scale uh, 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 aquaponics that have had real problems with iron deficiencies. But that's the one I would be most interested in hearing about because. It seems that potassium could be supplemented fairly simply uh, and organically, and it seems like there is a solution for calcium. So anybody that knows, let me know in the comments today or send me an email or something. What do you do about iron deficiencies in aquaponic systems? But back to the original caller that was asking about the nutritional value of the food, from what I'm hearing here, uh, we're not really in a big deficit with that at all. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Sasquatch from the forums again. I was just listening to your, one of your shows from last month, and I was listening to the part about uh, how to get rid of poison ivy. My wife and I discovered something last year by accident that I think would work great, and that is um, take boiling water in a hard boil directly off the fire and pour it on right at the roots of anything you want to get rid of. It will kill it. Uh, we accidentally killed a whole bunch of stuff that we didn't want to kill by doing that because when we uh, do picnics, we boil our corn on the fire uh, outside in a 32-quart uh, pot. And then we just poured the uh, boiling water out, and it killed everything it touched. Okay, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Well, it's certainly an organic control. I mean, it's hot water. It, it does its job, and it gets cool, and it stops doing it. So it's definitely something worth trying. I worry about it a little bit with um, with poison ivy. Part of what makes poison ivy so hard to get rid of is if you have you know two feet of poison ivy root system and, and you kill one foot ten inches of it, that little two-inch piece will you know overwinter and then it'll come back and it'll start growing and expanding all over again it's a it, it's a it's a it's very resilient 
So getting the water in down at the root system. The other thing that concerns me just a little bit, and I don't know, and this obviously wouldn't be as bad as burning it, but I worry a little bit about dumping the hot water onto the poison ivy and the immediate steam vapor that would come up if there could be some danger to that. I think if you did it toward the end of the year and maybe cut it back to the crown and poured it just on the crown, uh, it would mitigate any danger like that. Just like I said, you can, you can scorch the roots using one of those torches of poison ivy without the same risk that you get if you like cut it all up, put it in a pile and burn it. That's a totally different scenario because you're holding it in the ground then and you're just trying to, uh, and both methods, what you're trying to do is cook it. I think that if I were going to try this method to get rid of poison ivy, this is what I would do. I would cut, I would wait till the end of the season, I would cut the poison ivy back and I would, I would, you know, using long shirts and, and things, I would try to get, get it as far away from uh, any place that could be contacted with other people because even dry, that stuff can still get to you until it's really dried out for a long time. It kind of decomposes. So I would get it out of the area. And then I would get something like, we used to use these probes uh, to spot pipe, like depths on pipes when we did underground work. And it's like a T-handle with a point on it made out of fiberglass, so you don't electrocute yourself if you you know puncture an electric line with it. And you would take the mark that the uh, utility company did, and you would probe there and see if you could find you know the gas pipe or the phone line or whatever and get a depth on it. I would get one of those or something that would do something similar, and all around the crown I would make tons of holes to give that water access down in there and pour that down in there. And that might be highly effective because what you're going to do is effectively steam and boil the root system. And when you do that, you start like a, a starch sugar conversion process and it just metabolically destroys the life in, in the product. This is why we try to eat vegetables as close to a living state as possible because there's, there's a, a life force in a vegetable. I mean, some people don't want to believe that, but it's there. Uh, you can tell that it's there because as soon as you cook it, you see it go away. Uh, you see the color change. You see it soften and, and what have you. And it's no longer living. It's now dead. It doesn't mean it's not good for you. But if we can eat raw vegetables, it's, it's a better way to do it. The less we cook them, the less nutrient loss there is. Well, what you're doing is you're effectively cooking that thing in the ground. And it makes me wonder, is there is there a organic business waiting to happen here? A long, long time ago, what was that song that used to do that? Miss American Pie, right? A long, long time ago, uh, I, I heard of this guy, and I don't know if this was true or not, but supposedly he was a guy that would come and destroy fire ants. And what he had was something that sort of looked like a pressure washer, but it was like a steam generator and a probe. And he would come everywhere you had a fire ant mound, and he would stick that thing down in the ground, and he would basically steam the ants to death. And if somebody could build something like that, maybe you have an organic means of removing because that would be effective. Now we get the steam into the ground. And like you say, it's scorched earth. We're going to kill everything that's there. But it's certainly something worth trying. If you blend it with the things that I've talked about, like opening the area up and letting sunlight in, because poison ivy is a shade-growing plant. It doesn't like direct sunlight. Um, covering the ground with something and boiling it, I think you can get rid of most of your poison ivy problems without resulting to some kind of harsh herbicide. Uh, with that, I am done today. Great questions, folks. Remember to keep them coming. Don't call from a car with the window open. I know some of you are doing it. You, that's the only thing it could be. You're, hi, Jack. I want, and you're like, come on, you know? And, and I, I swear to God, somebody, I keep making jokes about it. it was one of you, but somebody called from a motorcycle. I swear to God, it, I, 
don't do that if you want to get your call in the air. Uh, try to keep your call under two minutes. I'll tell you a secret. The voicemail thing actually lands lost last three. Uh, but uh, I, 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 you know, I try to keep you in the two-minute range. Know what you're going to ask before you make the phone call. Write a note down or two if that helps you. But again, the number, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK, and we'll try to get you on the air. Uh, right now, if you called in today, you'd probably not be on next week's show, but the following week's show. I'm running about one week behind right now. Uh, with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you